You spell it S-A-N-T-A-C-L-A-U-S Hooray for Santa Claus. Welcome to a special Christmas episode of Bureau 42's podcast series. We could try to throw this into the Greatest Science Fiction Film Tournament podcast series, but it will not be on the greatest list ever made by anyone. Yes, today we are looking at a rather terrible movie. So terrible, in fact, that it is now in the public domain, not because it is so old, but because the companies that used to own the rights to it have been out of existence for so long that the copyright has not been renewed. Therefore, if you are listening to this through the Bureau 42 Master Audio podcast feed, you will find that you're also downloading the film as a special bonus that we've thrown in here. If you're listening to this from the Bureau42.com's main article page, well, there's also a link to archive.org, which is the source of the version that you're downloading, if you've got the RSS feeds, which are the same as the iTunes feeds, so you can enjoy this just as I have. That is, assuming you'd like to do it. Another reason that this is not part of the Greatest Science Fiction Film Tournament podcast series is that every one of those podcasts is a two-voice podcast where a couple of us discuss the film. When it comes to this, I wasn't able to manage that. Why not? Because that requires two people to watch it. And I couldn't find a second volunteer. This is bad. This is very, very bad. And I'm sure some of you out there are going, but which movie is it? If you've seen it, you're probably clued in in that little ditty I was singing when the podcast began. If you haven't seen it, let's get into it right now. The film is the 1964 holiday classic known as Santa Claus Conquers the Martians. We'll get into how misleading that title is later, but for now, let's go through the list of people who made this film, because somebody had to put it together. Now, first, we have the director, Nicholas Webster, who lived from 1912 to 2006. His directorial debut was a TV documentary starring Carol O'Connor. He then went on to direct a Warning Red short, Dead to the World feature, four episodes of ABC Close Up, the movie Gone Are the Days, one episode of East Side West Side, then Santa Claus Conquers the Martians. Followed by three episodes of the 20th century, Mission Mars, Big Valley, one episode of that, three episodes of The New People, two episodes of Bracken's World, an episode of Get Smart called I Am Curiously Yellow, which I may have to track down. Apparently that's a riff on I Am Curious, Yellow. An episode of The Immortal, an episode of Dan August, three episodes of Mannix, two episodes of The FBI, directed the TV movie documentary about the last days of John Dillinger, two episodes of Appointment with Destiny, two episodes of Bonanza, Riding the Rails, an episode of The Waltons, an episode of Apple's Way, two episodes of Insight, In Search of, the episode on Bigfoot, the movie No Longer Alone, the documentary Man Beast, Myth or Monster, I'm guessing Myth, and one episode of the Chisholm's TV miniseries, 28 total director credits, as well as seven producer, three writer, one miscellaneous crew, and one as himself. So, the director's career did not end with this film. Huh. So, next up, cinematographer David L. Quaid. Nine cinematography credits to his name. This was the first credit he has of any kind on the Internet Movie Database. After this, he was also the cinematographer on The Swimmer, on Pretty Poison, on Jenny, on Cops and Robbers, on Gold of the Amazon Women, on I Am Cheese, on A Night in Heaven, and on one episode of American Playhouse. We have Paul L. Jacobson. This is his sole production credit and his sole writing credit. He came up with the story that this film is based on. It seems to me that this was by and large his idea, which could explain why this is his only credit. Next up, Glenville Merrith. 
His only credit is taking Paul L. Jacobson's story and turning it into a screenplay. Composer Milton DeLugg, or DeLugg, I don't know, D-E-L-U-G-G, he is still with us. He worked in the music department on 19 different series, starting in 1949, ending in the year 2000. He was the composer on a number of these. Similarly, Santa Claus Conquers the Martians is credit 5 out of 29, many of which are the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parades, going right up to 2008. He's got soundtrack credits going up to 2011. Formula One BBC Sport, two episodes, 23 credits on that one. And Santa Claus Conquers the Martians is about the middle. Starts as The Flying Deuces in 1939, which I believe is a Laurel and Hardy. He's got six actor credits and 11 credits as self. Next up, editor William Henry. This is his second editing credit. The first was 12 years prior to it. This is Cinerama, the documentary. These are his only two credits. Maurice Gordon, art director, credit two of three. Jack Wright III, he was the set decorator. As John K. Wright III, he apparently was trying to change his name. This is his only set decorator credit. He's got four production designer credits, three art department credits, one actor, one art director, one camera and electrical equipment, one producer, one set decorator, one thank you, and one self. And these credits are scattered through the years, ending in 2012. We have Ramsey Mostoler, the costume designer. This is Ramsey's second credit out of eight. Mostly are as costume designers. There's one actress credit for Ryan's Hope, but Ramsey here was costume designer on Another World prior to Santa Claus Conquers the Martians. Following it, she was costume designer on Sesame Street, on Dead of Night, on House of Dark Shadows, on 1,093 episodes of Dark Shadows, on 780 episodes of The Electric Company, and on 785 episodes of Ryan's Hope. The production company that put this together is Jalor Productions. Its sole production credit is Santa Claus Conquers the Martians. Haberstroh Studios was the special effects company, which made two movies. Santa Claus Conquers the Martians is the first credit. Mission Mars is the second. All right, so that's it for the production crew. Now let's get into the actors and see what we've got to work with. We have John Call as Santa Claus. 26 credits to his name, this is his second last credit. He had a career before this, didn't have much of one after. His next credit was seven years later. That's his final credit. It is for The Anderson Tapes, which also stars Sean Connery and was directed by Sidney Lumet. Next up, we have Leonard Hicks. He's got three acting credits to his name. Guns of the Trees, Route 66, detective in one episode. And here we go. He is the key Martian character in this film, his name is Kimar. Huh, wonder how they came up with that one. Next up, Vincent Becks. 36 acting credits. This was the first as Voldar, the only competent Martian we see in the entire film. From here, he went on to bigger and better things, including the episode of Mr. Ed called Anybody Got a Zebra, the episode of Gilligan's Island called Yet, Yet, Not Yet, an episode of Get Smart, an episode of Gunsmoke, an episode of Honey West, an episode of Daniel Boone, an episode of Girl from Uncle, two episodes of Bonanza, but it's a two-parter, so he was one story, two episodes of The Man from Uncle, The Cat, Iron Horse, The Scorpio Letters, a couple episodes of Time Tunnel, one of Lost in Space, three episodes of The Monkees, the Pink Jungle, Don't Just Stand There, Bamboo Saucer, an episode of Adam-12, an episode of Wild Wild West, an episode of The Immortal, an episode of Alias Smith and Jones, an episode of Ironside, 
an episode near the end of the Mission Impossible original series run, an episode of Banyan, an episode of The Magician, two episodes of The FBI, one episode of Macmillan and Wife, three of Medical Center, three of Mannix, one of the Invisible Man series from 1975, one Petroselli, Firepower, and Justice for All, and his final credit is Judge Sinclair in Vigilante. So definitely a working actor, and frankly one of the better ones in this film. Next up, Bill McCutcheon. This is one that's going to blow a lot of people away. Yes, the man who in this film plays Droppo, the grossly incompetent Martian, in his third credit, has gone on for 24 credits, including... Uncle Wally on Sesame Street, for which he won an Emmy. Mr. Destiny, Tune in Tomorrow, Family Business, Steel Magnolias, a Sesame Street special. The Appointments of Mr. Jennings, Vibes, Spencer for Hire, Tales from the Dark Side, Great Performances, Kojak, Ball 4, Ball 4, and more. This guy has actually had a career. Next up, Victor Stiles as Billy, the young human boy who is kidnapped and is basically the one who saves the day in every possible way. This is his sole acting credit. Donna Conforti was Betty, his younger sister, her sole acting credit. Chris Month was Bomar, the boy Martian. Wonder where his name came from. This is his second of two acting credits, and he also played himself in an episode of The Ed Sullivan Show. Now, probably the most famous star in this movie is Pia Zadora. This is her acting debut. It would take her another 18 years to get a job as an actress. In this one, she played Germar, the girl Martian. She would later on, later go on to Butterfly, Fake Out, The Lonely Lady, Pajama Tops, Voyage of the Rock, Aliens, Hairspray, Troop Beverly Hills, Mother Goose, Rock and Rhyme, Naked Gun 33 and a Third, The Final Insult as Herself, Favorite Deadly Sins, and Frasier. She plays herself in 35 credits worth of materials. She's on the soundtrack of 11 films, including... Santa Claus Conquers the Martians as one of the singers in Hooray for Santa Claus, as well as one credit for archival footage. Next up, Layla Martin. She has three credits, an episode of True Story, then playing the mother Martian in Santa Claus Conquers the Martians named Molmar, and 12 years later, she plays the wife in a made-for-TV movie called Philemon. Charles Wren plays Hargo, his sole acting credit. James Cahill plays Rigna, his sole acting credit. Ned Wertmeyer plays Andy Henderson in this film. 59 credits to his name, including Rocky King Detective, The Amos and Andy Show, Alcoa Hour, Let's Rock, Car 54, Where Are You, The Second Hundred Years, He and She, The Impossible Years, Pinocchio, Get Smart, Some Kind of Nut, That Girl, Hogan's Heroes, The Governor and JJ, Gunsmoke, I Dream of Genie, The Good Guys, Mayberry RFD, CC and Company, The Bold Ones, The Lawyers, The Interns, Ironside, The Jimmy Stewart Show, The New Dick Van Dyke Show, Second Chance, Bad Company, You'll Never See Me Again, A Touch of Grace, Love American Style, A Summer Without Boys, The Snoop Sisters, Mary Tyler Moore, Macmillan and Wife, Mamie, or Mammy, Mammy, I honestly don't know if that's Mamie, Mammy, or Mame, The New Temperatures Rising Show, Sanford and Son, All in the Family, Lucas Tanner, The Strongest Man in the World, At Long Lost Love, Happy Days, Starsky and Hutch, How the West Was Won, Welcome Back, Connor, The Pack, Kate Bliss, and The Ticker Tape Kid, Lassie, A New Beginning, WKRP in Cincinnati, Mork and Mindy, Hometown USA, Harper Valley, PTA, ABC Weekend Specials, The Jeffersons, Simon and Simon, Chiller 227, The Practice, and Pirates of the Caribbean at World's End. Next up, Doris Rich. 
as Mrs. Claus in her final of 15 acting credits. And looking at some of these, including multiple appearances on Craft Theater, on Route 66, on Naked City, she had a very wide and respected career before she appeared in this film. Carl Dawn, 22 acting credits. This was one of the later ones. He played Cho Chim slash Von Green in Santa Claus Conquers the Martians, took him 11 more years to get another job. So before this, he was in the Asphalt Jungle, he was in Perry Mason, he was in The Big Story, he was in Suspense, he was in the Lux Video Theater, he was in a number of well-respected and well-regarded projects. Then he made this. 11 years later, he started working again, with roles like Man in Street Number 1 in Mel Gibson's Ransom, or Resnick in an episode of Kate and Alley. Ivor Bowden plays Winky. One of Santa's elves, his sole acting credit. Al Nessor has 12 acting credits. This one is Stobo. This is following his work on Lil Abner, Mr. Broadway, and Car 54, Where Are You? I should mention I'll call 54, Where Are You? credits are the original TV series, which hasn't aged well, but did well enough for its era. Not the more recent and rather abysmal movie. We then have How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying, No Way to Treat a Lady, Cops and Robbers, Caribbean, Hot Stuff, Hardly Working, and Harry and Son as the Taxi Driver. Joseph Ellick, 27 acting credits, including Santa Claus Conquers the Martians as Shim, a number of credits before that, including The Twilight Zone, The Target, The Asphalt Jungle, Murder Incorporated, Craft Theater. After this, he got into ABC Stage 67, The Producers, and a number of other credits. Most predominantly, probably, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest in 1975. Jim Bishop, in his sole acting credit as Lomas. Lynn Thurmond, in his sole acting credit in the KID-TV network announcer. Don Blair, in his first of three acting credits. His second was No Way to Treat a Lady as a reporter, uncredited in 1968, followed by two episodes of Highway to Heaven in the 1980s. Tony Ross... Six acting credits. This was the first. It took five years to get another job. Sadly, this is still his most high-profile job. He was one of Santa's helpers. Scott Aronesti, Santa's helper, sole acting credit. Ron Rothschild, 15 producer credits, four miscellaneous crew credits. This is his only acting credit as Santa's helper. All other credits start at 1985 or later. It took him 21 years to get another job in the industry. Glenn Schaefer, Santa's helper, sole acting credit. Gene Lindsay, Santa Claus Conquers the Martians as the uncredited polar bear. There is a polar bear in the film, which is very, very clearly a man in a suit. This is his second credit. Most prominent ones are probably Randall Drew on Dark Shadows and Alfred D. Baldwin in All the President's Men. That's the cast. So this begs the question, what is the movie about? How does Santa Claus conquer the Martians? Why does he need to conquer the Martians? What's it all about? Well, that's where the fun really begins. This is a pretty abysmal movie. Partly because Santa Claus does not, in fact, conquer the Martians at any time. So here we go. I've got it running on a Blu-ray player as I'm recording this, so this is going to be sort of a stream-of-consciousness commentary of the film from this point on. So we got Joseph E. Levine presents a J-Lore production. This production company with one credit has capitals on J, L, and R, smaller capitals on the vowels. Now we get the Hooray for Santa Claus Diddy, which is actually rather amusing. That's probably the best part of the film, playing over the opening credits. 
And sadly, it is the best part of the movie. So if you're following along at home, Santa has just slid the red one out of it. I'm getting the screenplay and spy credits on screen now, as well as director of photography, art director, and costume designer. And here we go. The Hooray for Santa Claus song has lyrics by Roy Alfred. We've got a very brassy 60s song soundtrack through here. You know, lots of brass, lots of trumpets and horns. It actually does show a lot of promise. It sounds like it's going to be a fun little 1960s film. It's a kids movie with the kids chorus singing that's honestly kind of catchy song. There is a cover of it available through iTunes by a band called Sloppy Seconds. I picked it up. I enjoyed it. Does get a little repetitive when they're telling you how to spell Santee Claus with no Y. And the credits are ending now. Just faded out. All right, the special event of the year is going on. We've got a first in television history. Someone is actually interviewing Santa Claus at the North Pole, as reported by a reporter on KIDTV. Now, we don't see who's watching this on TV. Not right away. The camera's actually moving in a little bit of a decent fashion. In the slow, slow, slow reveal of the unfamiliar room... And here we go, Bomar and Gurmar, the boy and girl Martian watching entranced. With head helmets on. Now the North Pole is currently 91 degrees below zero. Or, that's pretty darn cold. Uh, that would be in Fahrenheit, if you're looking at it in Celsius, that's minus 70 Celsius. Which is pretty darn cold. We're getting a lot of cold jokes. And there's actually a lot of cold jokes. They're going into Santa's workshop. Here we've got elves that are hammering on toys without using nails. They clearly need to be able to reuse the props. So, the reporter's coming over to introduce himself to Santa, who is the least competent and least intelligent Santa I've ever seen. For starters, he's painting a wooden toy with a paintbrush that does not have paint on it. Now, this is a classic series. It's from the 1960s, so Santa has a pipe. There's clearly smoke coming out of it, although that's going to change later. They're talking about rumors that he's going to be using a rocket sled, and oh no, he's doing it the old-fashioned way, and starts rattling off some reindeer, although he mixes up the names of the reindeer, including throwing in Nixon and saying that, well, the children know their names. Then here comes Mrs. Claus coming in, and she's doing the classic hen-pecking 60s wife, there's so much to do, why are you standing around talking, and then... Oh, you're on television, and oh, my hair is a mess, and oh, it's just... At this point, there are some hints of how bad this movie is going to be, 
but nothing can really prepare you for what is coming. It gets really, really, really bad. All right. So Santa is now bringing Mr. Anderson, the TV reporter, around to see some of the new toys. Now, Winky is sanding something, but no sawdust or anything is coming off. Winky's in charge of the space department. So he's making a toy rocket that uses actual rocket fuel. You're going to hand children actual rocket fuel? And apparently Winky is a Martian collaborator, since his idea of what a Martian looks like is bang on, right down to the utterly goofy helmets. He's got the capes, he's got the green clothes, the green skin, everything is an utterly perfect match. So we've got a lot of focus on this, Martian. And then we dissolve in, actually, it's somewhat interesting dissolve. It's a wipe that goes in a radial pattern. And we're at Kimar, the Key Martian. Now, you can tell he's an adult Martian because his helmet has a tube on the side. Now, he wakes up Droppo, who would later go on to win Emmys for Sesame Street, with a tickle ray. So Droppo appeared to be sleeping, although he's going to have an explanation in a few moments for why he wasn't sleeping. But he's laughing with a tickle ray. We'll have to keep that in mind because there's a bit of a problem later. Kimar extends his antenna to wake him up. Now, everyone has these badges that are sort of the shape of the Superman shield that are yellow and black if they're Martians. There's a letter, a dash, and two numbers. The letter appears to be the first initial. So Kimar's is K, Droppo's is D... So the costume designer who continued to get work after this was actually planning some things. The numbers may actually be referencing to their ranks. For example, Kimar, who's in charge, is number one. Droppo's number six. We see number seven. Everything we see are low numbers when we're seeing the upper echelons of the Martians. So again, costume designer, actually competent. Which makes you wonder, why is she... Join the project in the first place. So we see another hint of Kimar and Bomar, or sorry, and Germar. Bomar and Germar are kids, so they do not have the hoses on their helmets. But they do have the same antenna that are coming out. Now, they don't know a lot of the terms that are being used in this broadcast about Christmas, but they've been watching Earth programs for a while, and we're going to learn later that Earth programs have been available on Mars for a long time. Which begs the question, why is all of this new this year? Why are so many of these Martians unfamiliar with what's going on on Earth? It makes no sense, to quote the Fantastic Cast guys. And if you're not listening to Fantastic Cast podcast, you should. It's great. Now, they have to use sleep spray to get the kids to sleep. Although, he didn't seem to give them a lot of chance to do it. Kimar, who was the father of the boy and girl, 
just hits the switch. Just as Pia Zadora's character, Germar, is barely lying down. Now we see Momar. Right now she's going through the different food pills that she has. Mashed potatoes, hamburger, chocolate layer cake. They're all pills. Makes me wonder how they got it packed in, but it does say, okay, they're an advanced race. Now, this is where the plot starts to move. Kimor is complaining about how he had to use the sleep spray again, although, as I said, he gave her about two seconds of time to fall asleep. And it's happening to children all over Mars. So, Momar says, you're the leader of the Martians, you've got to do something about it. She suggests going to Chochum, the Ancient One, out in the forest... He's never failed them. So now he uses the communication device he has on his belt that they all wear and summons the entire council to meet in the forest at Chochum's throne. Voldar takes a while to respond and in a tone of voice that lets you know, yeah, he's not pleased. He's not thrilled. He doesn't really like Kimar's leadership. So I will give that actor credit. His tone of voice tells you everything you need to know about his relationship with Kimar. And he does become the primary villain in the movie. Yes, primary villain. The Martian who kidnaps Santa Claus is not the villain. Anyway, we go to the forest, which appears to be a bunch of crosses with cobwebs hanging off of them. Not one leaf in sight. It's not clear if it's supposed to be trees that grow like that, and they grow webs. Everyone but Kimar is at this forest, where they're going to find out, but they don't know why they're there. They assume that they're going to talk to Chochum and figure out what's going on with him. I'm thinking, why is this a surprise? Why is Voldar reacting like he's never heard this before, and the thought never occurred to him if he was asked to meet at the old guy's throne? It makes no sense. So Kimar shows up. Again, he's got the weird asymmetrical cape that Winky predicted, along with the asymmetrical helmet. Now they demand that this ancient 800-year-old Martian sees them now. Now the question is, is that Earth years or Martian years? Because they are not the same years. One year on Mars is 687 days. So if he's exactly 800 years today, that's 549,600 days old. Averaging 365.25 days in a human year, he is 1,505 years old in Earth years. I doubt the people who made this movie even thought about the fact that Mars and Earth will have different years. They did think they would have different calendars. It's currently the middle of September, as Kimar has just said in this version. But that's about it. There's no other regard for the differences between Mars and Earth including differences in gravity, differences in atmosphere, differences that should have ended this plot before it began. Anyway, 
This very ancient Martian recognizes that it's getting close to the time of Christmas on Earth, and that explains the problem with the kids. He's always said there's a problem with today's kids. So we know he's old. But his problem is that they never learn to laugh and to be kids and to have fun. Which to me begs the question, if they don't know what laughter is, if they don't know what fun is, why do they have a tickle ray? Now, the old one has to explain we don't really have children. We have adults in children's bodies because we educate them. Somehow, the education machines that impart all the knowledge Martians need to survive into the youth functions in such a way that they don't have a childhood. I don't get that. I think childhood is more emotional experiences rather than book learning. To me, those development stages wouldn't be impacted by all this knowledge here unless the knowledge is deliberately rewriting their brains to be some sort of cool and emotionless version that doesn't have that. In which case, if we're forming the emotional core of the adults, why is there conflict within the adults? Why are there differences? Why is it not just a race of uniform personalities that function together? It makes no sense. So, the old man has explained this is the problem, so then he throws out the children must be allowed to be children again. They need to know what it means to have fun. He's finally getting around to explaining something that we saw telegraphed a while ago. And then he disappears the way he came in, in a burst of smoke with no motion whatsoever. The old man can either teleport or explode. I guess to add to his mysticism, and therefore add to his credentials, and make it clear that, oh yes, he knows what he's talking about. So now they have to try and find a Santa Claus for Mars to make the Martian children happy. So what are they going to do? They're going to get the only Santa Claus they're aware of, the man on Earth. It's desperate problems. They're going to do desperate deeds. They're going to Earth to kidnap Santa Claus. No. Voldar doesn't want them playing and laughing and running underfoot. He doesn't want them to be kids and to be happy. He likes them in the place that they are right now. So now they all head to spaceship number one to return to Earth. Meanwhile, we're focused on the old man's throne, which as far as I can tell is a conveniently shaped rock. Next up, we see them flying through space in this spacecraft which is the classic 1960s sci-fi movie spacecraft of a little aluminum foil box with a massive, massive flame continually jettisoning out of the back. That causes continual acceleration. There's insignificant friction in space. You don't need to constantly drive it. One good burst, and then you just ride it the rest of the way. At least that's with our technology. They do get to Earth and back in hours. So... You could say that, yeah, they're moving fairly quickly. So, how quickly are they moving if they get from Earth, or from Mars to the Earth, in a matter of hours? Well, Mars's 
orbital radius is about 228 million kilometers. Earth's is about 150 million kilometers. If they happen to be aligned so it's a direct route, that is 700, or sorry, 78 million 300,000 kilometers between the two, using slightly more exact numbers. That's about, oh, about four minutes at the speed of light. Four and a half minutes. So it is possible to have something that works at a fraction of the speed of light and makes it in that much time. It would require a lot more acceleration and stuff than we have here. Now the Martians are close enough to Earth that they're able to scan it with their telescopes on magnification 5 or power 5, and they're seeing Santa Claus after Santa Claus after Santa Claus. And they've got to figure out which one to bring back. There's so many Santa Clauses to pick from, it should be easy. But they earlier said that there is just the one Santa Claus, and they know that. So cut to Earth, where they're confused. Maybe this is something from space. Just because the Soviet Union says, no, we haven't launched anything, everyone takes it at face value. Now we have stock footage, and a lot of it. Some of which was seen in the same year in Doctor Strange Love or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. Actually, it would have been seen earlier in the same year. But a lot of generic, serious-looking military personnel looking at computers, answering phones, launching rockets of their own, none of which seems to have any point. But frankly, a lot of this movie doesn't seem to have any point. So the they are reacting to the fact that the humans actually have radar, and their Earth radar beams are bouncing off the ship. So they go to check the radar box to find out why the radar shield isn't working. It wasn't even on up to this point. Why not? I don't know. Oh, and Droppa was in the radar box. A case of highly sensitive equipment with a massive empty cavity inside. And he messed up the radar shield by accident. So that's why they were detected. Droppa has to go hide below after fiddling with some levers. And just generally making things worse. Although how those leaders make things worse, I don't understand, because we're going to see those le levers again in seconds. In fact, they set the rocket silencers on. They're about to land. We are about to see them use those exact same levers that Dropper was playing with that were causing such problems are used to deploy the landing gear. Now the news announcers are saying that this object has just disappeared. Most people have assumed it's a meteor that's burned up. Although there is one expert who still believes it was a Martian craft. But anyway, we see the Air Force scrambling again in much more stock footage with the same brassy orchestral score. The music in this is actually not too bad. What I'm trying to figure out is why... They've got 
what are clearly summer scenes. There's deserts, there's everything. I don't know why they're launching deserts to find, launching from deserts to find something that's supposedly landing in New York. I just can't get my head around that one either. All right, so we have an aircraft taking taking off. <coughs> Several bombers out there. Not really sure what they're looking for. As we said, this thing dis- just disappeared from the radar screens. So we've got a bunch of dedicated intermittent guys searching for something they don't know how to recognize and don't know how to find. Doesn't seem like the most effective way to go. Now we get another cut to the Martian space vehicle, which, as we said, is in space. You look out the windows, it's still a starscape. This is where they deploy the landing legs with those levers that drop a hit earlier, but if there's a star field outside, they haven't entered the atmosphere yet. How is the radar reaching them? How is it returning from them? Where are they searching for it? Why do they assume that this thing burned up in orbit? It hasn't entered the atmosphere yet. Okay. So Kimar is giving orders about who's going down to the Earth and who's staying on board. As they are landing their spacecraft in New York. Daytime New York. When they've got radar or TV and radio announcements saying there's something very strange. There appears to be a meteor. There's an expert still thinks it's a Martian spaceship. They land the spaceship and no one notices. Okay. Yeah, they have a radar screen. Maybe it's an invisibility screen, but we see exterior shots of the ship. It's not invisible. It just, it makes no sense. Anyway, now we are meeting Billy and Betty, the brother and sister who are the key characters in this. The Martians have come to kidnap them, but they're doing a little comedic thing where Billy has his eyes closed trying to sleep, but then just arbitrarily decides it's time to go home, even though he's about to take a nap. Then the Martians decide to kidnap them. Then we get the little girl saying, Are you a television set? Because they have antenna. Voldar doesn't want to turn their Martian children into nincompoops like these. He seems to be the only Martian who has any clue about what's going on. So, now these Martians are asking for help finding Santa, and the kids just give up the information. No problem! to these guys who are pointing guns at them, but haven't outright threatened them. Now, they're about to leave. Kimar was willing to leave them behind, but Voldar says, no, that's bad strategy. They will inform the authorities. For the sake of our plan, we'd better take them. So Kimar grudgingly agrees. He may be a political leader. He's not much of a military leader. So, we do get a very quick T-1000 
TV announcement that says, oh yes, their disappearance has been noted, the police are looking for them, they have no clues. So while the police are looking for the missing children, the armed forces are continuing their search for the Martians as we get more stock footage, this time of large bombers being refueled in midair. Now we're back to the ship, and we see Droppo, who really likes kids, and he's giving them a tour. He specifically says he's not supposed to bring them there, but he's doing it anyway. So that's kids who've just been kidnapped and taken from Earth and are told that they're not going home are excited about being able to tell the kids back on Earth. What? But they're excited about being able to tell them that they're really on a Martian ship. Meanwhile, Droppo's going through and telling them what all the controls do, how to read them, and basically how to fly the ship. What the radar screen does, how it works, where the controls are. Droppo is not too bright. He's about as bright as this version of Santa. This will actually be important later. Now, there is an indicator light warning them of when someone's using the elevator to come up to the cabin. And Droppo's saying, well, there's no time to leave the cabin because we're about to get caught since the elevator light is going. So he hides them in the radar box, which is forming their defense. So when the other Martians come in and find Droppo, who's supposed to be guarding the kids here without the kids, well, Voldar clues in that there might be something going on. Especially when he sees Droppo looking in the radar box where he took a nap again. In this radar box, I recognize the design. I had a wooden toy box designed just like it when I was a kid. Just a slanted lid. Voldar realizes there's something going on. He's about to look inside the box and gets called back to his post. Because they're being pursued. Oh, they've just found Santa Claus workshop at the North Pole. They're setting the rocket silencers again. So apparently they can silence a rocket. How that works, given that most of the sound from a rocket is the wind from the exhaust leaving, it's it doesn't work with a rocket silencers. You want silent travel with an advanced technological society? You don't use rockets. You use some of the more traditional flying saucers with no visible output. But Droppo has just been ordered, again, not to let the children out of his sight. But of course, to keep up the pretense that they're not in the radar box, he leaves the room. So the Martians have landed, they're securing the ship. Now, if the numbers really are ranks, there's something seriously broken with the system. As I said, Droppa was number six, but Voldar is number seven, meaning Droppo would outrank Voldar. So I'm not exactly sure what the numbers mean. I still think it is some sort of rank. But if so, it's inconsistent. Anyway, the Martians leave the bridge unattended to go rescue Santa. And the kids are in the radar box. So now they're sneaking out. They're going to try and get to Santa first to warn him. Now, keep in mind, the attire is pretty clear here. 
Billy has a sweater over a shirt and black pants. Betty has a sweater over a shirt and a very short skirt. They're about to leave, and Billy thinks, oh, let's wait, and rips out the cables on the radar shield so it can't hide. To make sure the whole U.S. Space Force comes after them, they're about to leave, and he goes, oh, wait a minute, comes back, and that's when he remembers to close the lid. Why there's two sudden, wait a minute, I don't know. This should have just been, go back, rip it out, and then close it so that they don't discover the sabotage before leaving. Or Shatner would say, sabotage. Anyway, so the Martians are now on Earth. They're at the North Pole. Somehow, in a fairly linearly designed ship, these kids who are completely unfamiliar with it manage to sneak out before the Martians. They put on their gloves and their toques and their scarves, but everything else is unchanged. So Betty is out in minus 70 Celsius, minus 90 Fahrenheit temperatures, with nothing on her legs but nylons. And this isn't a problem. I'm sorry, I was born, raised, and still live in Edmonton. We get down to about minus 30 or minus 40 Celsius every year. Minus 40 Celsius is also minus 40 Fahrenheit. That's the point where the scales match. You're not going to be walking around in minus 90 with nothing but nylon stockings on. I don't care how important it is, if you're going to move, at the very least, you are going to be complaining or shivering. You're not just going to be running. Like, there's no problem. Anyway, the Martians follow after them. Now, they did have to activate either Turg or Torg, or Tog, depending on which actor is pronouncing the name. It's inconsistent. But that may be how the kids got out first. They may have stuck by behind when they were activating the robot. But the Martians are on Earth again. Now, I should mention, when they're on Earth, they've got no change in attire from what they're wearing on Mars, which is fair. Mars is cold. But there is nothing over their noses, nothing over their mouths. If Martians breathe, somehow they have no problems breathing in either Earth's atmosphere or Mars's atmosphere. They are two completely different atmospheres. These guys should have just suffocated when they went out unprotected and tried to kidnap Billy and Betty in the Central Park right from the start. They just shouldn't be there. Anyway, Kimar is calling Torg out of the spaceship. We haven't seen Torg yet. Possibly because Torg couldn't climb the ladder that they have for him. Now Betty finally complains about being cold and tired saying it's beginning to snow when it's not beginning to snow. So she sits on ice. They need to find Santa and protect him. But Billy's saying we can't stop now. His workshop's got to be somewhere around here. Oh. And then they see Voldar coming after them. He's the mean one. The one who doesn't like them. So they need to go hide. Now, when the Martians discovered that the kids had escaped, they found their footprints and left together following their footprints. Why have they split up? If they had split up, why did Kimar send Voldar alone to follow them? Again, to quote the Fantastic cast, 
It makes no sense. Anyway, so Voldar follows their footprints, and he's about to track them. But armed Voldar gets scared off by a polar bear that he doesn't fire upon. Leaves and doesn't come back. He knows where the kids are. He followed their footprints right up to the alcove they're hiding in. Ugh. Anyway, they got away from Voldar, so the kids are coming out. They don't know why Voldar ran away. And they haven't seen the polar bear yet. Now it is legitimately snowing. This polar bear is brutal. It is so, so clearly a guy in a suit walking on all fours. It is unbelievable. One of the worst fake animals I have ever seen. Right down to the point where we can see the seams in the costumes. We know how it's going. They tried to film it dark to make it less obvious, but it's still very, very obvious. Anyway, the polar bear tries to get them for no apparent reason, because polar bears... I don't know, maybe he's hungry. They do need to get pretty hungry before they attack humans. But... Oh, so they... The polar bear gives up in a matter of seconds. I'm thinking if a polar bear is hungry enough to be going after a couple of human kids, it's going to take more time before he gives up. And again, I don't understand why Voldar just completely left and didn't come back. He should have just been either attacking the polar bear with his weapons or waiting it out and watching from a distance. Because he... Voldar is conniving enough and nasty enough that he would have been perfectly fine to let this indigenous animal maul these kids on his behalf. And then just, oh, report, too bad, they're done. And just clean off that problem. So now, Betty spots what she thinks are Santa's workshop, or the lights from Santa's workshop, behind her, pointing, and Billy has to ask twice where she sees them. They realize that Santa's house is not actually walking towards them. It's a robot. Now, this robot is the kind of robot an elementary school student wears for a Halloween costume. We're talking cardboard box. We're talking cheap aluminum foil or silver sleeves and legs. Yeah, There's no way this thing could have come down the ladder prop that they had earlier. And the kids are frozen in terror. They are not moving. They're not doing anything. This unbearably slow robot just comes and picks them up. Now Voldar comes back and tries getting Tog to crush them. Tog does not respond to Voldar. Now, Kimar says that he set the controls on Torg so that he'd only obey Kimar. That's one possible explanation. Another possible explanation is that Torg only responds when you call him by his name Torg and not by the name Tog that Voldar insists on using. Seriously, this entire time, two different actors are using two different names for the same guy. Nobody stepped forward and said, no, the name is this? Now, Voldar is complaining that he's under orders that nobody is to be harmed. He doesn't understand what happened to the great planet, the planet of war. So I guess those Greeks really knew what they were talking about. And that 
the astronomers who matched up the Greek gods to the planets really knew what they were talking about? Because, hey, Mars is the planet of war. It just, it makes no sense. Anyway, these guys come up to Santa's workshop. And nobody sees them coming. Let me repeat that. Santa doesn't see them coming. The guy who can follow every single person on Earth, every child. Now, okay, you could say maybe he's only watching the child and doesn't catch the Martians or the Martian adults. But they brought human children with them. He should know where they are, at least. Anyway, Tog comes in and he picks up the dwarves. Santa comes and talks to him. And Tog becomes a giant toy. Santa just says, you're the biggest toy I've ever seen, very well made, and he's just become a toy. Timor is trying to give orders, but Torg isn't doing it. He's just standing there. So Kimar brings up his sidekick and decides, we got to do it ourselves. And Winky recognizes them as Martians, even though Santa thinks they're more toys. And Voldar uses some kind of weapon, which appears to be like an air pop bazooka, that paralyzes people. Now, Santa's disturbed that his elves have been paralyzed. He didn't seem to flinch when Tor came in and flipped over the tables where they were building the toys. And when I say tables, I mean there's like five in Santa's workshop making toys for the entire planet, and Torg flipped over two of them. We also see only two elves. These guys must work faster than we saw them before. Oh, Mrs. Claus comes in and, again, saying that she's standing around like statues, so she's noticed the elves. She hasn't noticed the robot or the Martians. They zap and paralyze her as well. And now Santa's, he's understandably dis- disturbed. Even Mrs. Claus is frozen and oh, she's going to be angry about this. Now Santa has been informed that this will wear off and they will be okay. Okay, but they're going to bring the human children back with them to Mars so that nobody knows what's going on. Now, Santa says goodbye to Mrs. Claus, saying, Well, there's nothing I can do. And I can't remember the last time you were so silent for so long. It's been 20 seconds. This is the classic sexist 1960s humor about henpecking wives. Oh, and there is a third elf who's standing in the back. So, of course, word gets out worldwide that Martians have kidnapped Santa Claus, even though they were careful to bring the human kids with them. Why? Because Mrs. Claus and the elves were there, and they were identifying them as Martians, they were left behind when the paralysis wore off, and they left behind their attacking robot. Again, it makes no sense. So they interview the Earth and U.S. expert on the Starshot program, who speaks with a German accent. 
So even in the 1960s, that whole relocation of Nazi scientists was becoming something of a trope. Now, they're talking about how they're skipping these six months of test flights because those astronauts are just chomping at the bit to volunteer to go bring Santa back. Now, this is something that is actually gets a little dark in terms of this one. The technology at the time couldn't turn around arbitrarily in the middle of space. It could either flow through orbits or it could steer around other objects. So we get more stock footage as they launch the rockets of the human astronauts to go after these Martians. Now remember, the human technology for spacefaring in the 1960s means the only way to get home is to get where you're going and come back. And these guys are chasing the Martians in the pre-moon landing era with moon landing technology. So if they don't find them quickly they don't find them at all. And if they're not going in the general direction of the moon, they can't come back. What kind of rescue is this? It makes no sense. Anyway, Kimar says, oh, it looks like we made a clean getaway. They're they're on the way out. Now, the Martian, uh, I forget, the letter H and number three on his badge, the one at the big beard instead of just a mat or instead of just a mustache is coming back with a joke he learned from Santa. What is soft and chewy and he roasted over a fire and it's green. It's a Martian mellow. Everyone but Voldar thinks this is hilarious. Voldar thinks they're all becoming these soft, weak Martian mellows. And he feels that the old man is a menace. So then we cut to the imprisonment where Santa and the two kids are there. And Santa, who can come through chimneys and get into any house every Christmas, no matter how secure, is sitting there with the kids telling a story about how he mistook a smokestack on the Queen Elizabeth for a chimney, trying to cheer them up and saying that there's no hope for escape. Did he forget he's Santa? Why can't he escape? It makes no sense. Oh. Anyway, the kids are feeling bad because they said, well, we told them where you live. We caused it all. And Santa's saying, well, no, everybody knows where Santa lives. Oh. And they're saying, well, our parents are going to be angry. He's saying, oh, that's nothing. You should see Mrs. Claus. How is Mrs. Claus going to be more upset than their parents? She saw the kidnapping. Their parents have no idea where they are. Anyway, Droppo's here. Santa's talking about how Droppo always makes him laugh. And Droppo has brought pills for soup and beef stew and chocolate ice cream. And he's there to feed the kids and try to cheer them up. Well, when the kids don't want it, Droppo asked if he could have his chocolate ice cream. So. And these kids are assuming Mars is a terrible place to live because chocolate ice cream is a pill. 
So Santa's saying, well, if he has a headache, he probably doesn't take pills. He probably takes chocolate ice cream. It's a weak attempt at humor. But... Anyway, so now that the Martians are on the way back to Earth, moving at speeds that are comparable to 1% of the speed of light, which no human vessel can catch up with, they spot that they're being chased, and Voldar checks the radar box, sees that it's been sabotaged, and recognizes that it's Billy, not Betty. Again, more 1960s sexism. Why would he assume it was Billy? Why would he not assume it wasn't Droppo again, who botched it up the first time? So now Kimar is taking evasive action, even though they're being pursued and have been pursued for a while, while Rigna is in there repairing the system. So now Voldar comes to visit them in the prison cell with the giant key that he tucks into his belt. So for the first time ever, Voldar is acting like a nice guy. He's never been nice to anyone. Betty picks up on it right away, saying, no, 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 you're mean, you couldn't be nice. Voldar's going, oh, no, no, Santa makes everyone feel nice, even me. The kids don't trust him, but Santa says, oh, no, that's not the Christmas spirit. Let's go along and follow with what Voldar was saying. Their lives are in danger. The kids know it. We later find out they're 8 and 10 years old. They know how serious this is. Santa is saying, go along with it. It'll be fine. Where does Voldar take them on the tour? To the airlock. Now keep in mind, these kids have already had a tour. Right. So Billy is in there explaining exactly what the airlock is, how it works, all of that. And Voldar's thinking, oh, you're pretty smart. You know a lot about space. Droppo gave them the tour already. And he points out everything about the dangerous doors, about the countdown clock, about the airtight doors, about the tiny little pipe that pumps the air back in the room. And Voldar mentions that, oh yeah, there's a, a switch back in the cockpit. When you throw that... There's nothing you could do to prevent the room from being evacuated and emptied in 60 seconds. Martian airlocks don't have a failsafe? There's no way to see what's going on in this airlock. It's on the other side of the ship. It's stupid. There is no, no concept behind this design whatsoever. Anyway, so Voldar quickly locks the door behind him as he leaves. And Billy sees the door timer, and Billy's the one that recognizes, oh no, the door's locked. So they're in the locked airlock after Voldar has explained what's going on and taken off. Billy tries the door, says they locked us in, and Santa's going, oh no, I don't think so. I think he just stepped out for a moment, and I'm sure he'll be right back. <laughs> Maybe the goal was that Santa was just trying to be reassuring and put the kids at ease. But instead it comes across just that Santa's a moron. All right, so Voldar comes back to the cockpit. Now, keep in mind, last time we saw anyone in the cockpit, they were being pursued by an Earthcraft, which has no way to get back home. We have no idea what happened to the Earthcraft. For all we know, these astronauts are dead. At the very least, they're lost in space with no hope of returning. This is the dark part of the movie. Voldar throws the switch, 
Santa sits here stroking his beard, watching as Billy tries to escape. Betty sits there watching as Billy tries to escape. They've got less than a minute to live. Billy's the only one doing anything to try and save their lives. And it's only when he comes to Santa and says, we need to get out of here. Santa comes back and says, where did you say this pipe leads to? The one the air gets sucked in through? There's seven seconds before it's done. Now, Voldar is excited to just sit there watching the countdown timer. Kimar comes in and asks, who's in the airlock? Voldar says, no one now. He finds out that Santa and the kids are missing. And Voldar says, yeah, they're drifting around in space now. Along with the rest of the space junk. Because, you know, when NASA astronauts go out and get rid of their trash, they don't call it trash, they call it space trash. So Voldar and Kimar get into a fight. And Voldar starts off with the upper hand. Kimar does eventually beat him. Which doesn't quite make sense to me. I mean, if one thing has been made clear, Voldar is the only one who has any interest in violence on Mars these days. So here's Santa's coming back saying, oh yeah, when Voldar accidentally left us in the airlock and then accidentally came up here and accidentally threw the switch, well, you know what? We thought that'd be the end of us. And the Martians don't understand how they got out of that tiny little air duct. Santa and the kids just laughed, saying, hey, you're talking to Santa. Of course we got out through the air duct. They ask, how is all you wouldn't want me to tell my secrets now, would you? And Voldar just passes out, possibly out of stress and strain. And Santa says, well, poor Voldar, he's fainted just like someone who's seen a ghost. And everyone, including Kimar, starts laughing. It's just... Yeah. Don't worry, only 29 minutes left. So they're starting the landing sequence again. They've managed to land on Mars... I don't know how they're doing this. They've got a giant view screen that's clearly showing they're still in space. But they've already lurched because they're on Mars, and then they deploy the landing gear. Uh, what's the point? First they hit the surface, then they deploy the landing gear, then they say they've landed, and open the hatch. The hatch is open, and that makes the ship secure. So they come back to the brig to to get Voldar and get him out of here. Only they don't find Voldar. They find Droppo bound and gagged. If you are going to have a guard on Voldar, first of all, assuming you're going to have a guard on Voldar, would you make it Droppo? Either he was left unattended after trying to pull all this crap, or they put Droppo in charge of guarding him. And he's got a rope and a gag. Either their brig has ropes and gags sitting in there somewhere, or he convinced Droppo to go get the gag and the ropes that he was going to tie him up with. It makes no sense. 
Anyway, so it's back to Kimar's home with Bomar and Momar and Gurmar, of course the boy Martian, mother Martian, and girl Martian. How they come up with these names must have been very taxing. Oh, so then they've got their public display of affection of tapping foreheads. That is a nice touch. It's recognizing that Martians will have different customs somehow. They have hamburgers. They have chocolate ice cream. They have chocolate layer cake. They have mashed potatoes. They've got all the same foods as Earth, even if they're in pill form. But there's some. they all speak English. They breathe Earth atmospheres, but they do different things. Anyway, so Kimar and Droppo come back with the kids and with Santa. And Santa's saying how he's not accustomed to entering people's homes through the doors, but you have no chimney. Yes, because there is no home on Earth that has kids Santa visits and no chimneys. Um, okay. So, Kimar asks how the kids are doing. And Santa's going to come say hello to them and and say, well, these human children, these ones that you've kidnapped, the ones who assume that Mars must be a miserable place to live, I'm sure they'll love to meet your kids. So meanwhile, the kids are under this information thing that's imparting the information about how to get to Jupiter and all this orbital stuff. And apparently Mars is an incredibly advanced space program that mankind has never noticed. So now Kimar is in there. The kids are excited and happy to see their father, and he brings in the visitors from Earth. So the kids meet each other, and they exchange niceties. There is a nice little touch when Billy holds out his hand to shake, and Bomar says, there's nothing in it. What are you giving me? And he explains the handshake by saying, you take my hand and you shake it, and he knows that means you interlock the fingers and move in a smooth up-and-down motion and not actually shake the hand. And they've got... Compare ages. It sounds like they're the same ages as Earth children. As we said, Mars has a different length of years. So the Martian kids are probably older. We also know the oldest Martian is 800 years old. So the rates of maturity are quite different. Now, Santa walks in the room and starts laughing. And that's enough to get everybody laughing. This has cured the Martian children. Santa laughs, and it's all better. Well, almost all better. Now, we've got the cure for the Martian kids. We still have Santa and two human kids trapped on Mars. And these kids... Their mother says they've never laughed before. They have a tickle ray. They've used it for punishment. These kids have never laughed before. This is just. Oh. It makes less and less sense every minute. Oh, and now they're sleeping without the sleep spray, which is another big step for them. And they're, the Martians are saying, oh yeah, we're going to set up a shop for you tomorrow. Now, here, 
In Santa Claus Conquers the Martians, Santa is very, very excited about setting up this shop for the Martian kids. Kimar tells him, you're never going to return to Earth. You belong to Mars now. Santa's response is, ho, ho, ho. That's it! He's a little disappointed. But there's no attempt at escape. Anyway, we've cut from here to Voldar as he's planning his little coup and his orchestrations to get rid of this plague on Earth. Or, sorry, this plague from Earth. Now, apparently Santa's under constant guard and they couldn't get within 20 feet of him without being disintegrated. But they've got some sort of nuclear curtain as defense in this ancient cave that Voldar is using as a base. So we know he's escaped. We're not sure how he's escaped from the spacecraft, but he has. Now, the guy who's giving him intel on Santa's new workshop is telling him that, oh yeah, this is all fine. It looks nothing like his workshop on Earth. It's all automated. I'm going, none of these guys knew who Santa is. He knows what Santa's workshop on Earth looks like. And then he said, what, how happy he is that he saw this coiled spring that goes down steps all by itself. Now, slinkies are cool, but really? Is it going to have that much effect on someone? But, oh. So Voldar's plan is not to eliminate Santa Claus, because they can't do that. Instead, they're going to to discredit him. Now we cut to Santa's automated workshop. Now this design is trying to make it look as though there are these interlocking 3D sections of the door that fit into slots in the wall. It is very clearly forced perspective painted on a flat surface. That's going to be much more clear later. Now, the kids are quite happy working in Santa's workshop with baskets catching things as they're coming off of conveyor belts. Why they're catching them instead of just picking them up, I don't know. But Santa is operating all the equipment by flicking buttons and levers. He makes three baseball bats by clicking the same switch four times, two dolls by clicking a different switch two times. Each switch that he makes makes a little light come up, and apparently that produces a toy. <laughs> Why does it have to be Santa flicking the switches? Why can't it be a Martian? Why do they need Santa at all if they can just make the toys and pass them out to the kids? Because Santa's only met two of them. They haven't taken Santa around the planet to laugh with all the other kids to get them turned around. So... Santa is actually quite happy with the spare suit that Lady Momar made for him. And he's... Droppo would like to wear it, but he says, oh no, it wouldn't fit you, of course. You'd have to fatten up first. Which, of course, brings up another round of hilarious laughter. 
So now they're back. Kimar and Momar are playing with some of the toys Santa has made. Santa's not tired, but his button-pressing finger has been pressing buttons all day long, and his button-pressing finger's tired, so you better put that finger to sleep. He's not pushing buttons! He's flipping switches! Switches and buttons are different things. I know this particular Santa's an idiot, but it's not hard to make that distinction. Anyway, so Billy and Betty are not interested in watching the Earth programs along with the Martian kids. And it's confusing, Kimar. He doesn't understand what's wrong with them. So, And he's asking if they're feeling well. And they're saying, oh, they're feeling fine. Good night. So we got genuine concern from Kimar. But the leader of the Martian people doesn't understand... Why his kidnap victims aren't happy. That's... He doesn't understand why they're behaving the way the Martian kids used to behave. And it takes Momar to say, They're homesick? Can't you see that? They miss their family and friends? You gotta send them back. Okay, great. Momar actually gets it. But Kimar's saying it's impossible to send them back. How is it impossible? You've gotten away with stealing Santa. Humans don't have the technology to come get Santa back. Where's the impossibility? You still have the rocket. Okay, now we're back to Drapo, who's trying to put on weight by having a bunch of pills for banana splits with whipped cream and chocolate cake. and So he's got Santa's pants on, and he's trying to fill out the suit. But he seems to have expected it to work just after eating the pills. Decides that takes too long, and he's going to, of course, stuff himself with a pillow. You know, I've said before that the Martians have goofy helmets with antennas and with tubes around them. But I haven't mentioned they are completely green-skinned. Which, okay, it's probably what you would have guessed, especially for a movie of this caliber. And when I say completely green-skinned, I mean that's the intent. I don't mean to make it people actually manage to cover every exposed piece of face with green skin, because they don't. So Droppo has put on the spare Santa suit with the pillow so it fits. He puts on the fake beard, and he puts Santa's hat on lopsided over the hose on the side of his helmet. And because his finger's not tired, he's going to go down to the workshop and make toys. Now, his helmet is clearly visible from all angles, as is the strap holding his beard on his face. Not to mention his skin is green. We cut down to the workshop where Voldar and his sidekicks are breaking in to sabotage the equipment. And they come to the end where they've got caution controls on the last box. Now, apparently this can make a number of different toys. There's dolls, there's trucks, there's trains. Each has its own little door with its own little light above it. And yet these guys are in here with a battery-operated flashlight. Because, you know, they're not turning the lights on in a room with no windows because they're afraid of getting caught. So now Voldar has a couple of wrenches 
that he holds near wires, but doesn't make contact with the wires and twists them like he's twisting screws and bolts. And it doesn't make a difference. Those wires strike me as being legitimate wires operating the system, and the actor was afraid to touch it because he didn't want to mess something up. So then Santa comes in, and they don't recognize that this Santa, who's got the martial hat, green-skinned face, green-skinned hands, and is singing Jingle Bells, is Droppo. And they kidnap him. They bring him back to their cave. The Santa hat is practically off. He's got the Martian hat on top. He's got the green skin. All he's saying is ho, ho, ho. And they're still not figuring it out. (laughs) So they reactivate their nuclear curtain defensive screen. And this is marking the end of Operation Santa Claus. What I don't get is why he kidnapped Santa Claus instead of just killing him as he's threatened to do time and time and time and time again. Now, Momar is calling everyone in for breakfast, noticing that Droppa was missing. The first thing she says to Kimar is that Droppa's gone. Oh, then Santa comes in. And lets them know that his extra suit is missing. So when Kimar says that the suit and Droppo are both missing, Santa puts together that, oh, well, Droppo must have taken the suit. And he's out playing Santa. Why they needed that explained, I don't know. And Santa's saying, oh, let him have his fun. He loves making toys, let him make toys. He's probably in the toy shop. That I understand. They've got no reason to think that Voldar would have gone after him. So now, Santa calls the kids to come in and have their breakfast before it gets cold. They're pills! So they come out of the workshop, and he announces themselves to Droppo. They assume he's going to be here working. They assume he's playing hide-and-seek. Why Santa would assume that Martians are playing hide-and-seek when they don't know how to laugh and play games, I don't know. Why the kids know what that means? Well, hide-and-seek is a pretty straightforward title. That I'll give them. Can't find them. They're still not concerned about the missing drop. Oh, they just decide to get back to toy-making. So he starts punching up the orders... This time, he orders a doll by flicking the switch three times. He made a teddy bear by flicking the bat button five times. So, I'm guessing that they only had two lights hooked up to this board to indicate when the switches are being flipped. The toys are coming out mixed up. Teddy bear heads on doll bodies and vice versa. A baseball bat with a tennis racket on the end. In a culture that doesn't have any sports, why are the kids asking for baseball bats, and how do they know how to program tennis rackets? So, they're trying again, bringing out a toy train that's been messed up, and... So, and Santa's realizing, this doesn't make sense, there's something wrong. Oh, this never happened when he made toys by hand. 
is that a message of this movie that the old ways are better? So Santa's finally cluing in that there's something strange happening here and he should, Bomar should probably tell his father. He does it by pushing a button on his belt that allows immediate communication with anyone he wants, as we've seen earlier. How does a portion go missing? Why are they not just pushing the buttons on the belt going, Droppo, where are you? It's Anyway, we cut back to Droppo, who's surrounded by the people who kidnapped him. So the reason they're not using the buttons is because that would spoil the plot, because then the other Martians who kidnapped him would hear the voices and track it down. Furthermore, if these things are like cell phones that could track you anywhere, how can you have missing Martians? How could you not know where Voldar is? How do you not have something scanning for as soon as his device comes in range? Again, it makes no sense. So, again, Droppo is being warned not to leave. He's told that the nuclear curtain will disintegrate him on sight, and his guard turns around and walks away. So what does Droppo do? Uh, he goes over and starts looking at the panel. Now, Kimar recognizes that somebody switched a wire. It's sabotage. So we didn't see any wires move. Now... If all it, the problem is, is that someone switched a wire and Kimar can see that by looking at it, he knows where the wires belong and where they are now. Why is it not repaired before he goes? He does figure out that Voldar is finally involved and goes to arrest Voldar. And he's got the paralysis ray pointed at Voldar and doesn't fire it. So Voldar is here saying, we've got Santa as a hostage. Now, Kimar does play into it pretty intelligently. He doesn't reveal that Voldar does not have the real Santa. Instead, he does ask for Turbs to figure out what Voldar's plan is, what he's looking for, what his goals are. So, Kimar agrees to play along for a moment, says, okay, you win. And then says, are you sure you've got Santa? And Kimar plays into it, claiming, oh, Santa's escaped. You had him. You don't have him anymore. Opens the door to the toy shop, and now Voldar and his companion are surprised. Why are they surprised? I don't know. After all, the Santa in the toy shop doesn't have green skin. The one they've captured does have green skin. Why was there any confusion? How can this be mistaken identity? Ugh. Anyway, so Kimar calls Rigna in to come and round these guys up and sends them to search the caves because that's some of the information that Kimar got out of them when he was interrogating them in the first place. And then he decides to lock them up in a storage closet. And he tells them to relax, they're going to be here for a while. Locks himself in with them, still with the weapon trained on them. Cut back to Droppo, who's going back to take another look at this nuclear curtain. Switches it off. And then switches the giant light bulbs around that indicate whether it's on or off. There's a red bulb on one side and a green bulb on the other. 
he switches them. Has a hard time getting it threaded correctly, but they kept shooting. The red light's going off, saying that there's a problem, that the invisible curtain's on. And he just says, ho, 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 calling the guard's attention before running away. So why does he draw the guard's attention? I have no idea. Just apparently to have them repeat the threat of the nuclear curtain. And he runs out. The guard goes back, takes another closer look at the controls, and realizes that the bulbs are reversed. Why the bulbs reversed? I don't know. The guy wasn't looking at the controls. I don't understand why Dropa didn't just turn it off and run. It just... It's a bunch of pointless extra steps. Anyway, Voldar is back in that storage closet, and him and his buddy managed to beat Keymar quite handily, partly by using the clutter in there. Now we go back to the toy shop where Santa has repaired the Martian technology that he doesn't like or particularly understand. And Santa goes to send Billy to the storeroom to get another tool that he wants. Thankfully, Billy hears Voldar before he goes in and recognizes that he's plotting things against Santa. So he comes back to tell Santa, who's painting a cart, this time he actually has paint on the paintbrush, although it does appear to be the same cart that he was painting at the start of the movie. I guess mass-produced, a bunch of kids can get the same type of cart. So Santa now has a plan to deal with Voldar with toys. And he's got his pipe out again, the one that was clearly blowing tobacco smoke the first time we saw it. Now his pipe blows bubbles. Why? How was it changed? I don't know. There's no explanation for why it's suddenly a bubble pipe. And he's paralyzed by Voldar, although that doesn't seem to last. Meanwhile, the kids attack Voldar, who's got an actual weapon, by using toy weapons and ping pong balls and air cannons and paper airplanes and balsa wood airplanes. Little toy soldiers that play music but don't attack. Tanks that drive by but don't attack. Trucks that drive by but don't attack. It's a room full of bubbles. One of them has a bow and arrow. That might actually do something. But these are... These are toys. These are harmless. And yet, Voldar is reacting like it's a legitimate attack, even though he still has a gun. This just... There are so many times where the plot depends on the fact that the characters are idiots. It is funny. This is why I watch it every single year. Oh. So, the extended sequence of the attack is still going on. It is rather lengthy. Santa is just sitting there laughing. He's not helping. He's just mocking. The guy with the gun is about to regroup at any moment. Now, Droppo shows up. His beard has fallen off. And Voldar's sidekick still doesn't recognize that it's Droppo and not Santa right away. And pulls Droppo in to see who Voldar is fighting. When he looks at the door, there's actually not a bad jump cut. As they, you know, put a ball in his mouth. But Kimar wakes up, comes out of the storage closet, disarms the guy before he can blast Droppo as the fake Santa. 
and Kimar comes in and tells the kids they can stop attacking Voldar. They don't. They're still attacking. He has to repeat it a couple times. Voldar is reduced to tears by balsa wood and ping pong balls. And then is just easily disarmed. Ringna brings him out. Meanwhile, Droppo's there in the Santa suit going, ho, 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 Merry Christmas. He's celebrating. And Santa says, oh, you don't need me. You've got a wonderful Santa Claus right here in Droppo. And everyone smiles and laughs, and it's a happy ending. So now Momar is saying goodbye to them as they're about to go home. And wishing them good luck, telling them to take care of himself. So you do feel that there was no malice towards their kidnapped victims, and the kidnapped victims actually seem happy that they're going home, which is nice. And they're wondering if they're ever going to meet again and see the other children. Santa's thanks for bringing happiness to the children of Mars, even though he met two of them. All they did was make toys with a machine the Martians made. I don't see where they've got it. Santa wishes his kidnappers the very best of everything. Droppo comes back in with a big fat belly, and again, no pillow this time, but it is a bulging belly and very circular belly, which lasts until Kimar pops it with a pin, so it's clearly a large balloon. Anyway, so Santa realizes if they hurry, they can get back in time for Christmas night. So they're apparently going to leave Mars with the Martian spacefaring technology. Which is probably the best thing they could do. Although they're leaving alone, so I'm not sure who is going to fly the ship back. Based on the level of competences I've seen so far, I'm going to assume it's Billy. But this ship, the most advanced ship in the Martian fleet, seems to be leaving on its own. I don't know, maybe Kimar sent a pilot with them to bring them back, and then bring the craft back after. But that's it. We've got the chorus of Hooray for Santa Claus wrapping it up over a starfield. We've got Merry Christmas with the picture of Santa over the stars. And thus ends Santa Claus Conquers the Martians, sometimes referred to as Santa Claus Defeats the Martians, which, if you're paying attention, does not at any time include Santa Claus conquering or defeating even a single Martian. The kids do it all! This is Billy! Billy's the hero of this movie, not Santa! Uh, so this was filmed at the Michael Meyerberg Studios in New York. The Michael Meyerberg Studios apparently were an empty aircraft hangar. We've got the credits scrolling by. We've got that funky 60s music, which again is the best part of it. we got Santa's helpers credited. And then it ends with the lyrics on screen. Hang up that mistletoe so you'll hear ho 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 on Christmas Day. You'll wake up and you'll say hooray for Santa Claus. S-A-N-T-A-C-L-A-U-S. Hooray for Santa Claus. Z-S-A-N-T-A-C-L-A-U-S. Hooray for Santa Claus. 
Hey for Santa Claus. Hooray for Santa Claus. And that's it. 80 minutes and 47 seconds of Santa Claus Conquers the Martians, in which Santa Claus does not, at any time, conquer the Martians. This is one of those movies that is so terrible it is fun to watch. On the Internet Movie Database listings of the 100 worst movies of all time, it's number 83. There are worse movies, but this one, just with the Santa thing, I watch it every year. It's one of my Christmas traditions. So I hope you enjoyed the little commentary here. I hope you've enjoyed watching this rather abysmal product on your own through whichever link you followed. And join us again for our next podcast, whatever and whenever that may be.